Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, The Island of the Fae, a story by Edgar Allan Poe. From <laughs> Graham's Magazine, June 1841. And uh, story is the reason I'm asking story is because what 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 kind of thing is this? That's the question, right? It's, what do you think? It's it, it is kind of strange. Um, just so that we we both know what we're talking about, um, it says uh, the Island of the Fae by Edgar A. Poe, um, who happened to be an assistant editor of Graham's Magazine at the time that this was published, um, and then begins a a sonnet, mm-hmm. which looks very much like the famous sonnet from twelve years earlier that Poe had published called, now it's known usually as To Science or Sonnet to Science, um, except that the last two lines are changed. And mm-hmm. in this publication, The Island of the Fae, that sonnet is uh, attributed to Anon. Uh, mm-hmm. So we have three parts. We've got this sonnet, which I think is well worth our reading. Um, then comes a discussion about the nature of science and the nature of talents and what it is that people do and can observe and see in the world. Um, And then uh, our speaker, um, who has been mulling about the meaning of science and talents, um, tells about a a walk he's had in nature, which he says is the most wonderful thing, to go into nature completely alone. Um, And he talks about um, what he sees there. Uh, an experience, uh, it's almost as if this were Wordsworth's uh, notion of poetry is mm-hmm. uh, uh, a strong emotion recollected in tranquility. So right. he, he gives us a story about seeing something, but he, of course is, it's now that he's telling us. So it's, it's three parts. It's, it's a sonnet, which is clearly a poem. It's a philosophical essay. Mm-hmm. And then it is a prose musing. But if it were in verse, you would think it's a lot like, say, Wordsworth's Daffodils. You know, I wandered mm-hmm. lonely as a cloud. And then, you know, there I saw a host of, of daffodils. Um, and then he talks about the feeling. And So is this thing a story with these three parts? That's, you know, that's the question you ask. Yeah. Um, what is it? Because you like this one, Jesse. And mm-hmm. I kind of do, too. But I'm not sure what kind of thing I'm liking. Yeah, it's 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 a bit confusing. So I think w- w- one way to uh, try and understand it is that Poe is just a super talented guy, and that's why they wanted to have him on this magazine, and they wanted to include art <laughs> in Graham's magazine, and the, uh, each issue would start with a plate, right, uh, an engraving or an illustration of a painting or something like that, right. And they wanted to have that piece be tied into something. Now, what I think happened, it, it, it's not the science on this or the history on this is not super clear. I shouldn't say the science. The history on this is not super clear. But I think what happened is they had this image and Poe just sort of, uh, re- I want to say reminiscent. That's not the right word. Ruminates on it because i don't think this is a true story this story he says at the end 
where he's wandering through valleys. I think it's kind of true, but not actually true. So what what's going on here is he's sort of making an argument at the beginning, saying, here's how music is. And there's something also kind of like music. And that's nature, or observing nature. And here is an observation of nature. And then he gives a massive description of it from his point of view. And that, I guess, is designed to reflect what's going on in the, the illustration. But the, I think it's the other way around. I think it started with the illustration, and he just turns it, you know, a picture into, into a thousand words. And so it's not a thing we recognize as a... You know what it would be? It would be a very good introduction to a book of poems or something like that, right? It would be a good introduction to a book of prose poems or something like that. But as it is, this is – I had not heard of this story until – or whatever this thing is – until quite recently. And I think that's because it is so hard to classify as to what it is. You like it. You 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 see what he's doing. But it's not a novel. It's not a short story. It's not an essay. It's not a poem. It's not a argument. Uh, it's not. It's not any one thing. It's just sort of here's massive talent, and here's a sort of very narrow subject. I'm gonna go crazy on it. There's a a, a, a really funny essay that he's written a bunch of funny essays. One's called the Philosophy of Furniture. <laughs> I don't have read that one. But it's basically him just saying – it's like a home and gardens, you know, sort of poem – no, not poem – a piece about how to make the perfect room, right? How to place the things in the proper relationship to each other, sort of a feng shui via po. Mm-hmm. More conventional would be, you know, uh, the philosophy of composition, which is how to write a great poem. And he uses uh, – the Raven as the example of the great poem, and he's right, it is a great poem. Here, I think he's going the opposite way. Instead of starting with an image being painted in our heads by the poem, he starts with the image and then paints uh, a story out of that poem. But he does that by having a, uh, a few paragraphs describing how to get into this phase somehow. Does that make any sense? It does. It does. But I, I think that the talent here is, is so good that there, there is a wholeness to this. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not just um, three separate pieces uh, under the title The Island of the Fae, or four if you count the, the, the plate. Um, I, I'd like to offer one possible reading of this. Sure. Um, the plate just, uh, the plate shows a, a dark scene, um, which is in fact described in the story itself. Um, so it's sunset is what we're supposed to think of. Um, we see dark shadows of the trees cast into on onto the water of a river. In the middle of the river, there is an island, an eight, um, uh, an island, which also is treed. And to the left, we see a, an ethereal figure clad in white. That must be the fae, the fairy, uh, on a boat. 
And the story the, that he, is, he tells us that he has seen, um, that's in the third part, he has seen this fairy, this fae, uh, drifting in her boat around the island. And as the time passes, she goes around and disappears behind it. She has a sad look on her face, too. But as, the, as he is lying on the ground, on the bank, watching, the sun is setting. And as the sun sets, he says that the, the black shadows of the trees seem to move off the trees and become absorbed by the water. So that as time passes, we get closer and closer to blackness, which ultimately is what we get, blackness, which could stand for a lot of things, lack of knowledge, but could also stand for death. Um, the circuit that the fairy makes around this river island um, she goes and disappears behind it, but then she comes up again. In the course of watching, she goes again and again around the island. And we're told that the circuit around the island may be like, you know, going from night to day. So if we're thinking of the the setting of the sun the, as metaphorically death, um, in fact, it may well be that this fairy is getting sadder and sadder because not only is the light fading, but her life is fading um, so th that's the picture that it's just a picture of an island. It's darkish, um, trees, water, which is a symbol in a river for time passing. And then we add to it. I mean, he, I should say the speaker adds to it. This, that's the third part. The second part is a discussion about whether or not, um, talents exist, um, in a hierarchy, and the assertion is, um, this is how the second part begins, la musique, says Marmontel, with the same odd confusion of thought and language, which leads him to give his very equivocal narratives the title of Contes Moraux, um, so moral tales, an equivocal narratives, a confusion of thought and language. Poe's narrator is setting us up to realize there's extra meaning here. La musique, says Marmontel, music. La musique est le seul des talents que jouisse de lui-même. Okay. Uh, it then goes uh, on a little, tous les autres veulent des témoins. Okay. The easiest translation is to say, music is the only talent that is enjoyable all by itself. Um, all the others require witnesses, require an audience. Mm -hmm. Now, this guy who's saying this, we later come to know, um, he thinks that the height of, of pleasure is to wander alone in the fields. Mm -hmm. Now, I got to tell you, personally, I would rather most times take a walk with someone else. And although I might spontaneously hum when I'm alone, I like sharing observations and hearing my companion's observations, whether I'm walking in a park or walking in a field or climbing a mountain or in a museum or just going down an interesting city street. I don't view it this way. Now, why do I say that? Because I think, hold your hat, Jesse, mm -hmm. I think there's a sexual reading to this that's entirely plausible. Mm. The French verb jouir from which we get this uh, la musique est la seule des talents que jouisse de lui-même, right? Jouir leads us to jouisse. Uh, it means to have an orgasm. Hmm. 
it's it that's another meaning of it. Uh, in fact, Roland Barthes has a famous book of criticism called La Jouissance de la Text, um, which he plays on the fact that it can be the enjoyment of the text or the fact that the text itself explodes after a buildup. Mm. Um, so right here, the very first sentence after we get past the poem about science, la musique est le seul des talents qui jouissent de la même, de lui-même. Music is the only talent that just enjoys itself all by itself could be read as masturbatory. Mm. Right now of all the music that one could think of. In fact, we get one instrument named in this story and it's made named more than once. And the, the, word, the yeah. it's the lyre. Mm. Right now, a lyre, after all, is a special instrument. We associate it with angels. And the ancient Greeks thought of it as so significant that we even call the kind of poetry, which is just the utterance of one voice, lyric poetry. Mm -hmm. Right now, if you look at a lyre, it's iconic. It looks like a woman. Right. I mean, a lyre with its curving in and its rounded bottom. I mean, it mm -hmm. looks like a woman. So here we've got someone saying music is best enjoyed alone. And it's the only only of the one of the talents that one can enjoy all alone. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be strumming on your lyre? Mm. After he goes through this argument about how the talents can be used, he then says, and what I like to do alone is go out into nature. He doesn't say mother nature, but go out into nature. And when he's there, he sees this island with the fae going around it in the boat. Mm -hmm. And you can't help but wonder, excuse me, I can't help but wonder if this entire episode, presumably recollected in tranquility, was in fact a projection on the part of the narrator. That there was no island, there was no uh, fairy. There is in the etching, of course, but but the story that comes with it, there was no uh, no fairy, and that brings me back to the sonnet. So, mm -hmm. if I may, um, in the island of the fay, this is the sonnet that Anon wrote. But of course, we know it's actually Poe. Science. True daughter of old time thou art, who alterest all things with thy peering eyes. Why prayest thou upon the poet's heart, vulture, whose wings are dull realities? How should he love thee, or how deem thee wise, who wouldst not leave him in his wandering, like in the hills, or by the riverbank? to seek for treasure in the jeweled skies, albeit he soared with an undaunted wing. Hast thou not dragged Diana from her car, the goddess of the hunt, and driven the Hamadryad from the wood, that is, the, the, the tree spirits are, are no longer in the forest? Hast thou not spoiled a story in each star? Okay, so we can't say there are gods up there. Hast mm -hmm. thou not torn the naiad from her flood? The spirits of the river are now gone. The elfin from the grass, the dainty fay, the witch, the sprite, the goblin, where are they? So the opening sonnet to science is saying, look, with science, we look at things so realistically that all of the creatures of imagination that we truly believe are in our world with us 
they're all gone. Now, on that basis, he then talks about art that makes life good. And he talks about music being the only art that one is that's better when you do it alone. Um, but I compared this sonnet to the original version published 12 years earlier. And in the original one, the la it's identical except for the last two lines. So again, the last two lines here, after complaining about what science does, the last two lines here are the elfin from the grass, that's what you, you've gotten rid of it, the dainty fay, the witch, the sprite, the goblin, where are they? Whereas in the original, it says the elfin from the green grass and from me, the summer dream beneath the tamarind tree. So in the original sonnet, Poe's speaker is complaining that science has made it impossible for him to dream, for mm -hmm. him to exercise his imagination. But in the revised version for the Island of the Fae, he's not saying you've made it impossible for me to dream. He's saying you have banished these things from the world forever. You've gotten rid of them. And so the Island of the Fae is a story about the progressive movement of that fairy to darker and darker times. The question only is, will there ever be a dawn? Or is the fairy going to be gone forever? Now, there are other questions as well. If the, the death of imagination is this horrible moment, then the creating of a, a lyric out of that projected experience is the making of a poem. Admittedly, only the first 14 lines of the Island of the Fay are verse, but one can read the whole thing as a lyric poem, an mm -hmm. utterance of the human reinjecting imagination into a world that science has tried to to drain of anything that's not absolutely real. I think one can read this as a cry for putting science in its place. And recognizing that the only way to really do that is to do it for oneself. Because when you go to share experiences, the best you can do is create a poem that will make other people feel like they have seen them. Mm -hmm. But they can't have the experience itself because those experiences are all projective and imaginative and imaginary. Uh, I, I, I like your reading. There's... um. Two things that I would find from a little later in the in the piece that uh, I think are the the middle of his argument and then the beginning of his reinjection of the fantastic into into a world that is entirely entirely materialistic um, as opposed to you know fantastic and uh, so I want to read these two. Uh, snippets from two paragraphs on page pages 261 and 262 of the uh, of the piece we'll add to the post. Um, it goes like this: Our telescopes and our mathematical investigations assure us on every hand, notwithstanding the cant of the more ignorant of the priesthood, that space and therefore that bulk is an important consideration in the eyes of the Almighty. 
This here, he, I think he's doing two things. He's saying uh, small things and big things, right? Small things and big things. And he makes an argument that's really interesting about our size compared to the size of the world, compared to the size of the universe. He says that the in, in animal animalculae which infest the brain. I think he's talking about brain cells. Um, being, in sense, a consequence of the in, inanimate and material in much the same manner as the animalculae must regard us. So he's arguing that we, looking at the world, can look at it wrong. And when we look out at the universe with telescopes and we do the physics, the math, um, Notwithstanding the cant of the more ignorant of the priesthood, those people who believe that the earth was created by God 6,000 years ago, I think is what he's talking about here, um, bulk is an important consideration in the eyes of the Almighty. Bigness. This is about awe, looking out at the universe. So much of this poem or, or piece, whatever it is, is about looking out at the, the massiveness of space that we get in that early poem, uh, the two science sonnet at the beginning, and then reflecting on a much quieter and smaller scene. Um, and that argument that is beginning the, the piece after the poem develops into the scene. And I think that transition starts right here. And this, is, I think, is a very personal piece for Poe. I think he's being playful, but I love this, this little snippet I'm going to read. These fancies, and such as these, have always given to my meditation, among the mountains and the forests, by the rivers and the ocean, a tinge of what the everyday world would not fail to term fantastic. He's saying that thinking of the universe, or the earth, as a living thing, as the, not, not just you know, the creatures on it or the trees on it, but the actual earth is injecting a divine spirit into something that is entirely material. This is the amazing thing about Poe is he is both a science fiction guy, all about science, and also a fantasist, and also all about fantasy. And he reconciles, I think that's what this is, is, is trying to reconcile there's this other line just before the one I just read. It goes, in short, we are madly erring through self-esteem in believing man in either his temporal or future destinies to be of more moment in the universe than, quote, and he's quoting something I do not recognize, clod of the valley, which he tills and contemns, uh, probably condemns, to which he denies a soul for no more profound reason than he does not behold it in operation. He's quoting. Um, but that clod of the valley, I thought this is really interesting. It's like a versus, you know, a clod of earth is uncountable, just like sand is uncountable. But a grain of sand is countable, but dead. Whereas a clod of earth is uncountable and alive. In looking at the earth as being alive, that then reflection that we see upon the image where he describes um, what he sees in the original plate is 
injecting fantasy into a naturalistic scene. One of the lines that he says, uh, there's so many great quotes in here, but uh, I want to read this one. It's just, it, he, he's turning everything that's natural in a very romantic poetry kind of way, everything that's natural into something that's supernatural. So he's lying on the, on the bank of a river underneath an aromatic herb that he doesn't recognize and observing. And this is what he observes. My position enabled me to include a single view, both the eastern and western extremities of the islet. And I observed a singularly marked difference in their aspects. He's, we should all be looking at the picture while we read this, right? That's what he's describing. The latter was all one radiant harem of garden beauties. It glowed and blushed beneath the eye of the slant of sunlight and fairly laughed with flowers. The grass was short, springy, sweet-scented, and asphodel interspersed. The trees were lithe, mirthful, erect, bright, slender, graceful. Of eastern figure, the foliage was dark, smooth, glossy, glossy, and party-colored. There seemed a deep sense of life and joy about all. And although no airs blew from out of the heavens, yet everything had motion through the gentle sweepings to and fro of the innumerable butterflies that might have been mistaken for tulips with wings. It's it's a poetic description, but it's injected with not naturalistic descriptions, you know, the names of the plants. He doesn't name the herb under which he's under. He's less concerned about this, you know, than a botanist would be lying under a bush, right? About what kind of thing that is, or insect entomologist would be. He's injecting fantasy into this image. It's I I, I don't know what this piece is, but it's amazing. I think that uh, I agree. Uh, I like your notion of reconciliation between the fanciful and the scientific. If we take a look at the things that do get named, because you're clearly right that most things don't get named with specificity. The things that do get named are, are therefore, I think, significant. Mm-hmm. So what we see here, as you just said, it's asphodel interspersed. Right, The grass was asphodel interspersed. Well, asphodel is the... Uh, is the plant that's used to uh, uh, to line the fields of uh, uh, toward the the movement to Elysium? It's uh, a feature of the asphodel meadows in ancient mythology. It's how you go on to to death, but a happy death, right? Elysium is um, is the afterlife among the gods, and in fact, what we see is that all of these trees are described as being a cypress. Mm-hmm. Well, there are a lot of different kinds of cypress. Among these cypresses, there with the redwoods and the sequoia, the, the largest and, and longest living trees on earth. But it turns out that all the way back to the Greeks and the Romans, the cypress has been a symbol of death, life, and afterlife. So, you know, he only gives us a few words, but those few words all have to do with the undoubted biological scientific fact of mortality understood in terms of mythology, 
poetry, imagination. Um, so I, there's a, a lovely moment there. It says that uh, the uh, the butterflies that might have been mistaken for tulips with wings that you, you mm-hmm. mentioned. Um, there's a footnote. Mm-hmm. A footnote. And the footnote is Latin. It says, uh, Florum putaris nare per liquidum ethere. Um, by P. Comire, or Comiel. Well, it turns out that Isaac Disraeli um, published a book in 1835 called Curiosities of Literature. It was one of these books that just had little snippets full of things. And mm-hmm. in that book of snippets published in 1835 in New York, um, P. Comir is um, known as a pleasing writer of Latin verse. And he has, in fact, this line. And the line literally translates, it flies and swims a flower in the liquid air. So we've got this Latin, right? This Latin statement looks so scientific, right? It's, it's Latin. But in fact, it's the pathetic fallacy. It's seeing life in, um, and emotions in things that aren't, in fact, alive or emotional. The metaphors are throughout this. It's, mm-hmm. it's nature imbued with um, human feeling, but it is described, as happens when the romantics write, including Wordsworth, as if those things were, in fact, there only to be discovered by the poet rather than input by the poet. So the three movements in this lyric are, look, science, you're making it impossible for the world to have these things, as opposed to my earlier statement when I wrote the poem and said, you're making it impossible for me. Look, science, you're making it impossible for the world to have these things. But philosophers have looked at the different arts and decided that at least if you have an art that you can practice alone, then you can have real beauty. And by golly, I go off into the woods and alone, I get to see that beauty. And I can, as you said, Jesse, I can reconcile these things. I mm-hmm. can see them in a world that I understand realistically. So why bother writing The Island of the Fae? Because you need to keep reminding yourself that it is possible. Uh, you need to do it. And to do it, you have to share it. And mm-hmm. that, is, that seems to stand against that notion that music may be all alone, but what Poe is doing here is not done all alone. And he quotes, this is another legitimate quote where he gets, you know, the scholarship right uh, from someone named Zimmerman, la solitude est une belle chose, right? Solitude is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Mais il faut quelqu'un pour vous dire que la solitude est une belle chose, but it is necessary that you have someone for whom you can, to whom you can say, that solitude is a beautiful thing. <laughs> yep. And that's why he's writing the story so that he can he, have he's having everything, Yeah. He's having everything both ways, right? It's he's right. This image of a lone man, maybe Poe under a tree, under a bush, looking out at this beautiful image, that that fay in his description is not a woman on a boat. It's a uh, he he even says it's a uh, the bark of the trees hitting the water, and you can imagine them to be anything. He imagines them to be 
a, a, a fae, right? And that that injection of mind on the image of beautiful nature is so beautiful in this that if I couldn't share this with you, I don't think uh, it would be as wonderful. <laughs> you know, he can't. He you can't. You can't have a a great novel all in an unknown library on an abandoned planet and have it be a great novel. It has to have a reader who says, oh, my God, this book, everybody, you got to read it. Indeed. Poe is saying here what we say all the time. There is always more to say. 